So it is the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. In your heart, you know he's right. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. This is Liberty in Exile with your host, Yael Osofsky. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bring you liberty, not destroy it. The evil that governments do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones. So let it be with liberty in exile. Hello and welcome to the program on this, the third day of June in the year 2013. I am your host, Yael Osabski, broadcasting to you from Wien, Österreich, Vienna, Austria, the greatest city in the world, right in the heart of the European Union. We are broadcasting on the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda Stream. This show is all about, that's right, defeating the Leviathan in the 21st century, political and media corruption. So let us begin with the program. So I've labeled this show uh, to be very special. 1984 is not a beginner's guide. And I've broken it up into three segments to respect the wishes of the author of the great book, George Orwell, into War is Peace, Freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Now, being in the city of Vienna, I've been able to witness all of those both at home and all over the world, especially in the United States of America, those poor, sorry saps. So I guess uh, we can sort of begin looking at that in our War is Peace segment. We're looking at corruption of political officials and in the media world. And one of the greatest commentators that we have to point us to both of those is a gentleman by the name of Glenn Greenwald. He is himself a columnist at the Guardian newspaper uh, in London. I believe he he lives uh, in Brazil at this point. But he wrote an amazing uh, article on Obama, President Obama, in his terrorism speech where he gets together uh, with, you know, the American flags, puts a podium together and talks about why we need to end the war on terror, why we need to basically erase everything that's been done basically throughout his presidency. And you saw all the progressive news channels and the liberal Twitterosphere go crazy with this speech and say that it was the greatest thing ever and what a fine gentleman this Obama is. And it's so great he said this, and I believe... uh, Glenn Greenwald really pokes the bubble in saying some eager-to-believe progressives heralded the speech as a momentous change, but Obama's actions are quite often different from his rhetoric. Now, that is exactly what George Orwell's 1984 was about, in a sense. It was about language. It was about controlling the people through language, trying to basically sequester them, if I can use that word, through using soft language. 
we hear candidate Obama, who is still out there, and there's President Obama, which people apparently do not want to notice and uh, definitely do not want to look at what he's doing with his drones, with his wars, and with his targeted killings. This is War is Peace. Everything that we have now in, the, I guess, on top of the podium is a peace president. That's sort of what people saw. That's what a lot of people, when they tuned into these channels and they heard these blabbermouths on television, that's what they heard them saying. This is a it's a peace president, you know. Someone here who's who's watching out for us, you know. He's trying to do all the good things. Well, really, when we look at it from what is the true perspective, we see that this is a president who is not less committed to war, but he's in fact more committed to war more committed to killings, more committed to using drones to kill tribal leaders and militants, uh, basically any male over the age of 16, in deserts all across the world. And another example that I have in the show notes, again, you can look at all the show notes, videos, links, everything on libertyinexile.com, and you can also follow me on the Twitter, at Yaelosss. And what we're looking at now is another article, it seems as if uh, President Obama, this peace president, has in fact asked the Pentagon for a no-fly zone plan for Syria. Now, this has been sort of a, a great little test of, of what we've been able to put together of uh, basically the American media and the American political establishment uh, basically committed to get everyone in this country to accept the fact that we will go to war. We saw, I believe, about a year ago, we covered the fact that the clandestine forces are using all the weapons they can and trying to push them onto these Syrian rebels, most of which are connected to the so-called al-Qaeda. But again, that doesn't stop uh, the black ops of the American government and also of the Irish and French uh, secret services, we cannot forget that, of pushing the the weapons onto them and trying to, of course, uh, prop up uh, whoever they think will win. And in this case, it happens to be the people who are tied to the so-called uh, terrorist group Al-Qaeda. And, uh, you know, not just Obama is pushing through this. His, you know, you really have to wonder who actually won the election of 2008 because we see John McCain fly over there to Syria himself and give a, a surprise little Memorial Day trip with a lot of these so-called rebels you know, this is the same group that has uh, videos where they're massacring people, and they're the ones who actually unleashed the chemical bombs, according to the UN. And uh, he had a great video of, or I guess you could say great or bloody video, of the guy who is a rebel commander basically ripping out someone's heart and eating it in front of everyone. I mean, this is the group that your tax dollars are funding. So that's a very great stuff that's going on in the United States of America. War is peace. Uh, while Obama may be giving great speeches, we are still in over basically 180 countries all over the world with military bases, that being the United States. So, of course, uh, while it might be the rhetoric of peace, we know that war is peace. And again, 1984 is not a beginner's guide there, President Obama and not President McCain, but it shall not stop them. Other things I've, I've linked to in the show notes have to do with a great speech uh, together with Jeremy Scahill and Noam Chomsky talking about uh, Jeremy Scahill's new books, his new book, Dirty Wars, uh, talking about Yemen, uh, Pakistan, and Laos, everything that the black ops are doing. There's a, a great link, a good YouTube video, so you can link to that. 
Also, there is a link to Republican lawmakers, apparently, who used the Memorial Day weekend to push for more war. It's a great little op-ed from Mediaite. I've linked to that. But but since we are at this uh, segment of the program, and we do look at all types of corruption in the political and media world, I thought it was very fitting to play this clip here. What we're talking about is the Obama rhetoric. And since we have the Obama rhetoric that is pushing for peace, we should also see that he is in the same swipe pushing for war. This is a clip from Real News. Uh, This is going to cover the expansion of the militarized police all over the United States. I was able to record this uh, as a journalist in North Carolina, and I've seen it uh, throughout my own travels. And this is what happens when you have all these types of focuses on so-called terrorism, and you can scare your population and you put them in a constant state of war, even though you pronounce it is peace, and then you give all these police departments military-grade weapons, armor, and have all the SWAT teams looking like they're about to invade Iraq. So here's a clip, and we'll learn a little bit more about what's going on in cities across the USA. Men in heavy armor carry assault rifles, patrolling streets alongside armored personnel carriers. These are scenes from the Manhunt in Watertown, following April 15th's Boston Marathon bombings. After locking down the area, local, state, and federal agencies sent SWAT teams out in force in search of the remaining suspect. The images from those days are striking, and raise serious questions about how and when the use of paramilitary policing tools should be used. SWAT teams originated in the late 1960s, but their use greatly expanded in the 1980s as the Reagan administration doubled down on the drug war. In 1988, the Byrne Grant Program passed Congress, allocating substantial funding for anti-drug policing. As money was awarded for drug arrests, resources shifted toward drug raids, increasingly using SWAT teams for this purpose. Meanwhile, federal programs were introduced, increasing training and cooperation between the military and domestic law enforcement to battle drug crime. Other Reagan-era policies encouraged the transfer of surplus military hardware to law enforcement, which in the 1990s became firmly established by the Clinton administration's 1033 program, incorporating millions of pieces of equipment designed for war zones into domestic policing agencies. After the September 11th attacks, the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, began awarding grants to enhance special operations and tactical resources to local, state, and federal agencies. Ollie Winston, an Oakland-based journalist covering law enforcement, has watched the application of the DHS grants. Hundreds of millions of dollars to local law enforcement administered through states to uh, beef up the capabilities of police departments to respond to terrorist threats. And what that means is that they're purchasing heavy equipment like armored personnel carriers. Oh, uh, yeah. Purchasing body armor. They're purchasing mobile command centers. Uh, In some cases, these funds are actually now being applied towards drones. Many large defense contractors have shifted, at least in part, away from military contracts toward domestic law enforcement due to the billions of dollars available through DHS grants and several new companies have arisen specifically to supply military-grade assets to police agencies. There's a lot of venture capital being invested in surveillance systems and technology. The major defense contractors, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, L3, they've all put tremendous amount of, uh, a tremendous amount of capital into 
developing such systems. In a 2011 report, the Center for Investigative Reporting found that in the decade following 9-11, over $34 billion in DHS grants were dispersed in order to fight terrorism. However, the recipients of those assets were not just in cities such as New York or Washington, D.C. Most often, they were small towns such as Oxford, Alabama or Keene, New Hampshire, unlikely targets for terrorism. But Bob Chabali, chairman of the board of the National Tactical Officers Association, the NTOA, and assistant police chief in Dayton, Ohio, believes these grants and much of the equipment they buy are imperative for ensuring the safety of communities across the United States. You just saw what happened at the Boston Marathon recently, uh, where, in essence, the acquisition of that type of equipment enhance the safety of that community. There's no money you can set on that type of equipment to protect the personnel that are dealing with that problem. Uh, realize that, and it's not to be an alarmist, but the fact is that terrorism is here. America. See, it's all about terrorism, trying to get the terrorism who are in Keem, New Hampshire, the terrorists who are in Ohio, those terrorists who are in suburban West Virginia, terrorists all over the place. And this is a great pretext that is being used, as we all know, and I believe we've all seen in our local communities, to have just ever more control. And that paired with the drug war is really allowing for a huge clampdown. And for a lot of these uh, companies and industries like Lockheed Martin and the like to make some uh, some good money. And of course, we're, we're all for making money on this program. But when we're talking about corporatism and a system that allows uh, these types of uh, basically abuses of civil liberties to take place, then we know that that is not at all what is to be intended. So that is, ladies and gentlemen, part of the 1984 Is Not a Beginner's Guide program. That was the first section. War is peace. So continually talking about peace in sort of your speeches and your rhetoric, yet you are enforcing war not only across the world and in Syria and Iraq and Yemen, but also right at home. So it's great. And uh, for the next section, we're moving on to freedom is slavery. Now, I'm holding my... Uh, copy of George Orwell's 1984 uh, right here. It's a, it's a great uh, Signet Classics edition. Uh, is a, you know, this is a, a book that I believe a lot of young people in school read and do not really grasp what, is it, uh, what it is about, and I really don't even understand it myself until I had to reread it plenty of times, and then you, you really start to understand that this is really what a totalitarian system is but not one necessarily where violence is used constantly to to get people to do whatever you want, to subdue people, as you could say. Noam Chomsky's own media model that he talks about, the propaganda model, it picks up on this uh, a great deal. You basically use the media to spin all types of news and information and to create new realities and to allow all the questions that are important to never, ever be asked. And you can actually pretty much control an entire population in a democratic society. Now, since we did talk about war is peace, now it's freedom is slavery. Because what is being free and uh, trying to have liberties? What are you guys trying to do, crazy people? And uh, for, for this section of the program, I thought it'd be best, and again, you can listen to all the clips I'm playing and read all the articles that I've uh, linked to on libertyinexile.com. We have everything there. Also have the Facebook page where we're trying to keep it lively uh, all throughout the week. 
But since we did touch on the U.S. before, it's time to come over to the European continent. And uh, we'll, we'll start off on the British Isles and uh, talk about what's going on with their surveillance state. As we all know, London is one of the most surveilled societies on the planet. And, of course, this does not end <laughs> just at the present uh, after the so-called, uh, I guess there's so many of these so-called because uh, the way that it's sort of construed is you have the uh, the Muslim fellow, the black Muslim fellow in the street who hacked some soldier to death and uh, went up to the camera and had his red hands and you know who knows what really happened there. But after that, the British government, the UK, and the London mayor wants to come out and say that we need not just uh, you know. <laughs> greater control of who we allow into our country or anything of the like, but instead we are going to put more cameras everywhere. We're going to create a much bigger surveillance society than we already have. You know, this is a, a problem that, again, is caused not by you or I. This is caused by the governments, the reason that terrorism happens. And if you watch the clip and the video, the fellow who was born himself in Britain, lived here his entire life, he spells it out pretty quickly. He says, because Britain is killing Muslims all over the world, he feels it is his duty to uh, be in London and kill some British citizens himself. Now, that is uh, the chickens coming home to roost in the example of Reverend Wright. But, of course, for those in the political class, this is not something that they can ever, ever, ever even try to admit because then that would break the entire illusion that they have spun for many years. So here's a little clip about what they're trying to do in the UK. I'm sorry they're sad, London. Well, earlier today, Boris Johnson said that police have made a pretty compelling case for greater surveillance powers. The mayor was asked a question about whether, following the Woolwich murder, it was time to introduce a so-called snoopers charter. Well, our reporter, Helen Drew, joins me. So what exactly, Helen, would a snoopers charter snoopers mean? Snoopers charter. Well, this is officially called the Communications Data Bill. Right. It's been nicknamed the snoopers charter because what it would mean is giving police and authorities more power to look at people's communications. Oh. The thinking behind it really is that people communicate in different ways than they used to, a lot on social media, online, and this would monitor that, that communication monitor. and store the data for up to a year. In light of what's happened in Woolwich and the fact that we now know these two suspects were known to secure, uh, security services, people have been <laughs> talking about wanting this snoopers charter, and one of those this morning was the Mayor Boris Johnson. It's much too early for us to say whether this would have been any use at all in this particular case. It would have been. I must say that over the last uh, year or so, the police have made very powerful representations to me uh, of the usefulness of uh, this ability. And I have to say that I think their arguments are pretty compelling. But at the moment, though, that bill has stalled, hasn't it? That's right. Last month, it pretty much came to a standstill. It had spent quite a long time going through the usual parliamentary processes. But as you can imagine, it had been met with quite a lot of opposition, people worried about civil liberties and that kind of thing. And one of the main opponents was the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg. We're not just simply going to sort of ram some legislation through, uh, through Parliament. We'll make sure that uh, uh, our proposals are published in draft, people can look at them, people can debate them, because there's a legitimate debate to be had. No, there's not. So where does this issue go from here, then? 
I've been speaking to the Home Office this morning who were really keen to, to stress that it wasn't totally abandoned last month and so what would need to happen in order for it to come back is for it to be basically tabled in the House of Commons like any normal draft bill would be. And it's also worth noting that it was something that was alluded to in the Queen's speech recently, although that may or may not necessarily take the form of legislation. Okay, Helen, thank you very much. I bet you the Queen has never even been on the internet, yet we're going to use the pretext of her throne speech to try to push through legislation, trying to look at everyone's emails and communications. Well, I I have to hand it to you there, the United Kingdom, you're you're doing everything you can to really turn it not just from a surveillance city there in London, but to the entire country. Way to go, ladies and gentlemen. That is a great uh, great progress you've made there. And there's so many parts of this report that we can pick apart on this. Uh you know, the whole thing in Woolridge as a saying the British None of that ever would have been stopped or halted if they had any sort of access to emails or anything. People just, they just went out into the street and hacked some guy to death. It's not as if they had planned it for months at a time on emails and sent each other maps of where to do it and where to go and how to buy the weapon. I mean, come on. Come on. This is just another excuse. Terrorism scares people. This is freedom is slavery. We're going to make you more free by taking away more of your rights. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to see that in the U.K. it's just happening without haste. It's great to see. And actually, while I speak to you, I see an Austrian police officer in the street, a huge window here in my Viennese apartment. And I can see a, a Austrian police officer who's ticketing a poor fellow in the BMW. I mean, that, that's really the extent of, of what it's like here in Austria. But in the UK, the police are everywhere, they have their cameras up, and now they want all your email, all your information. I'm sorry they're Brits. Perhaps uh, there, there will be something in the future to save you. And while uh, this, I believe, is a two-pronged fork, uh, one prong is the terrorism, and the other prong that we have in trying to get people's information and communication and basically censor the internet and make it centrally controlled is child pornography. And we have another clip from the Brits who uh, are looking into this again. And uh, perhaps they are going to crack down on the Internet because of all this child porn that is running rampant everywhere. So enjoy this clip. This is, again, part of Freedom is Slavery on the 1984 Is Not a Beginner's Guide program on Liberty in Exile. The conviction of Mark Bridger for the murder of five-year-old April Jones has increased calls for restrictions on access to online pornography. Just like Stuart Hazel, the man convicted of killing 12-year-old Tia Sharp earlier this month, Bridger had searched the internet for violent sexual images of children. Downloading pictures of child sex abuse is already illegal, but would tighter controls on internet search engines deter the likes of Bridger from seeking out indecent images? Campaigners have called on internet service providers to do more to block adult content. But one company that has been criticised, Google, says it's already doing a lot. We take it down immediately when we hear about it. We also count on our millions and millions of users around the world to flag content to us that they think might be illegal. And as soon as we're notified of it, we remove it and we report it to the appropriate legal authorities. Well, earlier I spoke to the MP Claire Perry, who advises David Cameron about online child protection, and I asked her what is actually being done to stop images of child sex abuse being available on the Internet. 
behind every one of these images is a, is a, the absolute sickening spectacle of a child having their innocence abused. Let's not forget that. But I think you know the problem we have is that the internet grows like a weed every day. So every day there will be thousands and thousands of new websites out there popping up all over the world. We had the former head of the Child Exploitation Online Protection Centre on last night, and he said when he was in charge they had 600 reports of abusive images a month. Now they have 1,600, and they have less money and fewer staff to deal with that today. So it doesn't look like this is a government priority. Well, look, on the contrary, I think from the Prime Minister down and actually across, across all parliamentary benches, this isn't a partisan issue. There is a huge amount of cross-party support uh, for making sure that, that politicians uh, you know, and regulators are doing more. And actually, CEOPS has been put in the centre of the National Crime Agency. I would argue it's actually got a much more joined-up remit. And, of course, what's happening is, you know, it used to be the case that CEOPS would, would seize computers with one or ten abusive imageries, images on it. Now they're seizing computers with a million images, a million pictures of children um, being abused. You know, that the problem is growing exponentially. But of course, it's an ongoing problem. We have to be continually vigilant. The internet companies all say they're doing everything that they can. And quite clearly, that is not enough. So surely this is the point at which government has to step in. The Labour Party have been saying today, if the internet can't sort itself out, they would legislate for this. I wish there was a magic bullet. There isn't. Legislation might be the right way to go in the long run, but that comes with lots and lots of consequences, particularly in a really fast-changing area like the internet. So we have a system that's working. We have to do better at identifying these images. Um, but, you know, ultimately, there isn't much that would have stopped Mark Bridger in, in what he actually did. Let's not forget also that absolutely disgusting and distasteful as these crimes were, we're not sure whether this is causation or correlation. The information... the this Sickening imagery is much more accessible now, but you know the jury is still out as to whether it actually does cause this behaviour. And if the technology companies won't take more stringent action, will the government at some point legislate to force them to? You know, I shouldn't say this as a politician. Government's actually quite a bad regulator, I think, of places like the internet. What you want is the companies, those companies who are making billions of pounds of revenue of, from providing content access or generating content or being a, use, you know, a platform for other people's content, they have to have in their mindset that they are absolutely involved in this process as well. And actually, I would say that in the last two years, we've seen a sea change in companies' attitude. We're making really, really good progress. But Clearly, these sorts of cases and this absolute tragedy that's been um, wrought on these families, we, we just have to keep doing whatever we can to make sure it doesn't happen again. Free speech is a <clears throat> great idea, but we're in a war. And in the UK, they're in a war on pornography. And you hear it, of course, it's as if uh, somebody views porn anywhere and then they want to go and rape and kill people everywhere. It's this type of connection this type of uh, trying to associate any type of behavior that should be protected by any sort of free speech... I mean, we're talking all the way back to the Magna Carta in the year 1215 there, Brits. These are things that do not necessarily mean that someone will go out and start raping and pillaging and killing because they view an image on the Internet. This is just one of the prongs on the two-pronged fork to trying to shut down the Internet, trying to catalog all of our conversations, all of our email uh, you know, communications that we have, every sort of website we go to, yet another attempt. Freedom is slavery, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the 1984 message that is brought to you by the British press, the British government, and what's going on in the U.S. 
Okay, and that, that's uh, how it goes. But again, this cannot be just relegated to everything going on in the UK. I have to use the American example as well. We see this with the rise of the police officers who, um, of course, like to treat citizens as if they are the low class. We uh, like to treat them, say, the police officers like they are the stupid citizens they are. And uh, according to this police officer, we need to kill all of them if they don't listen to his commands. This is really what it takes to have a sort of freedom is slavery society, one where you can control people and really try to get them down into submission. Make them heed to your every call, every beck and call. This is a a little clip I took from CNN about, I I believe, is a police officer in Ohio who has on multiple occasions uh, been... uh, basically threatening to kill citizens and shoot them in the face, and uh, he's still not yet fired. So uh, apparently he's uh, probably a good example to follow. I'm sure he's a textbook example of what all the officers in the United States of America would like to be. So let's listen to the clip. ...are demanding a suspended police officer be fired. Dashcam video you're about to see appears to show the officer threatening to shoot people during traffic stops. Here's Eric Mansfield of our affiliate WKYC. It was posted one week ago. Already, it's an online must-see. Canton police officer Daniel Harless berating a driver who appears to be trying to show Harless his concealed carry license so that Harless would know he was armed. I'm so close to caving in your head. But now comes a second video. I'll kill every one of you mother. This one from a year ago. No, I'm telling you what, I will shoot you in the face and I'll go to sleep tonight. As Harless's temper again flares while instructing two people in the backseat of a car during a traffic stop for suspected drunk driving. Well, it looks like uh, we're seeing uh, repeat beha- behavior. It's a disturbing pattern. Philip Mullivar is with Ohioans for Concealed Carry, a group that is calling for Harless's job. In both cases, this officer's behavior is entirely egregious. He needs to be removed at once. In both cases, Officer Harless is encountering a gun during a traffic stop, which is always a perceived threat for police. Now it's up to police brass to determine what's acceptable. You mother get the out before I shoot you. Eric Mansfield of WKYC reporting. The Camden Police Department released this statement. It says, quote, the officer was relieved of duty and has not worked since the incident. It is being fully investigated. Criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor Holly Hughes had a lot to say about this case when I spoke with her about it just a short time ago. I don't mind an officer using profanity, Don. I don't mind that his tempers are flaring and he's Mm -hmm. jacked up. But when he starts threatening to kill citizens, to shoot them in the face, to put them in their grave, calling them morons and idiots and liars, he's gone over the edge because now what we see is an officer who cannot control his temper. That's a crime, Don. If a citizen said to another citizen, I will shoot you in the face, and as holding a weapon, has access to a weapon, that's a terroristic threat. That is a felony charge. So this officer has gone beyond the pale when he starts threatening. Okay. And if you allow the police state to grow and you allow this type of atmosphere to try to metastasize, then that is all that we are going to have, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have police officers who believe they are above the law, who will shoot you and threaten to kill you on a simple traffic stop.
Now, that is uh, the attitude that they're pushing, and that is the second chapter of our 1984 Is Not a Beginner Guide series here on the Liberty in Exile program. I remind you that you are listening to the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda Stream. All of our podcasts uh, can be linked on libertyinexile.com. Also, I, I do have some other websites that I've been putting together. I did uh, write an article for The Stateless Man about Bitcoin and attempting to use Bitcoin to avoid all those excessive bank fees. So you can find that on thestatelessman.com. And I do urge you to listen to Fergus Hodgson's program on the Overseas Radio Network and a bunch of other liberty-minded networks as well. So that's a a good program, a good article to to mix into this. And uh, that leads us into our third and final chapter that we just finished was Freedom is Slavery, and now we are on to Ignorance is Strength. We like to talk about government corruption here on Liberty in Exile. It's been a long-time fun process uh, since I started this program in Marial on CJLO 1690 AM and continuing on now in the European continent. But I think the most pristine example from which I can uh, close this story of 1984's Beginner's Guide, I have to talk about the CIA and drug dealing during the Iran-Contra years. Now, I'm not going to be the best at trying to provide a resume, so we're going to go to a great program that aired about 10 years ago, about actually about 15 years ago, on the Montel Williams program. Now, this is a, a daytime talk show that you think would uh, talk about lushy topics, but actually... Montel Williams, and I've played his clips before on medical marijuana, has uh, kind of been a truth fighter. So it's been very interesting to watch. He did an entire show, an entire show on the CIA dealing drugs, running drugs, and providing cover for drug dealers all throughout the 1980s so they could fund the Contras in Nicaragua. So this is a, a great uh, – I'm just going to play a clip or two from the show. This, again, this is Montel Williams, and you can find the full clip on libertyinexile.com. I'll have it there. So let's listen to Montel Williams. We're talking today – this is really a show about what we can call rumors, the rumor that the CIA was involved in making sure that cocaine made it to the streets of south-central L.A. back in the early 80s and then helped to develop and turn it into crack, which was then spread across America and is the reason why most of our inner cities are in the plight that they are in. And a lot of this has been out there for years, but it wasn't until recently that the story broke again. And my next guest is a reporter, not from San Diego, California, but from San Jose Mercury News, and he wrote a story called The Dark Alliance. Please welcome Mr. Gary Webb to the show. And Gary, this this really, I think, the, the current fervor over this issue is because of your article. A lot of people may not be familiar with what the Dark Alliance meant and stands for. Why don't you tell America what the story is about first, and then we'll okay. talk about the issues. This is about, it was about a cocaine ring that operated along the west coast of the United States uh, throughout most of the 80s. And they were funneling, um, they were selling cocaine in South Central, they were also selling it in Oakland, they were selling it in San Francisco, they were selling it in San Jose. Um, and some of the money they were making was going to support an army that the men who ran the cocaine ring worked for called the FDN. This was an army that the CIA started in 1981 and supported. Better known to us, most of us who remember the news, the Contras from Nicaragua, Cigarette Head. The men that were running the cocaine ring were top officials of this Contra army. 
And what we found was that um, they were selling this stuff in South Central, which is you know predominantly black section of Los Angeles, immediately before the outbreak of the crack cocaine epidemic. They started selling powder, tons and tons and tons of powder cocaine was going into this one small area of the city. And from there, they sold it to Freeway Rick. And Freeway Rick took the powder, turned it into crack, and um, starting in 1983-1984, began distributing it to predominantly the, the gangs, the, the Crips and the Bloods in Los Angeles, and they spread it, you know, from there. From there. Now, this since, since this has happened, you have you have butted heads with everybody in Washington D.C. trying to get information about the story, have you not? Yeah, we 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 worked on this for a year, and um, it was only because you know some people at National Archives believe freedom of information means freedom of information. We got some documents that showed that pretty strongly there were some CIA connections. Let's talk now, now, the last uh, gentleman you heard there is Gary Webb. He was an investigative reporter for the San Jose Mercury News, and unfortunately he was, uh, we believe, in the alternative media at least, probably killed for his reporting. He eventually lost his job, and they say he's, he committed suicide. Uh, there's a, a, lot of to, to, a lot of stuff to study on him. His name is Gary Webb, a good Wikipedia uh, very long Wikipedia entry on him, so you can read on that. And, of, of course, this video will be linked on libertyinexile.com, so you, you can listen to the whole show. It's about 40 minutes, and they also have a, a former DEA agent on there talking about the, the drug scandal. You even have Charlie Rangel, congressman from New York uh, in Harlem, who's actually talking about this scandal as well. And he's talking about the CIA is out of control, and uh, basically nobody can control them anymore. They're out funding all this and all out dealing drugs, and they need to be reined in. So that's uh, very interesting. So let's listen to Montel Williams give a nice little wrap-up of what this whole thing is about, the principal players involved, and really why ignorance is strength. If the government can do things and the citizens definitely do not know about it, then, of course, that strengthens our democracy and strengthens the powers that be. Let's talk a little bit about those documents for a second. Because there's a gentleman, this figure that we talked about yesterday on the show. His name is Blandone, uh, Danilo Blandone, who was a person who was a member of the aristocracy of Nicaragua before the fall of Somoza. And then he fled and comes to the United States and decides while he's in the United States, so you can all understand this, he wants to raise money for the revolutionaries who are trying to overthrow the government that just overthrew them. Right. So here in the United States, they try to do fundraisers and that doesn't work. And then right. Blandone gets a scheme, well, I can get some cocaine cheaply with some help from some of my friends and get it into the United States of America. All I need to find is somebody who can sell it. So they find a gentleman by the name of Rick Ross, who is Freeway Rick. Rick Ross comes in and starts selling cocaine at the terms beginning one or two grams. And within weeks, two, three, four kilos a week. Within months, what was it, 10 to 15 kilos a day. Ricky Ross was selling cocaine to the point of making three to four million dollars a day. He sold so much cocaine, it hurt his fingers to count the money. Not only in Los Angeles, but in Cincinnati, in St. Louis, all the way across America. So some can say, and this is the reason why people are so angry at you and your article, is that Ricky Ross, the dope dealer, was supplied by the CIA because Blandone was an operative for the CIA, correct? Blandone and Manessis were working for an army that was a wholly owned subsidiary of the CIA. They were meeting with CIA agents. Blandone, and, and, and this came out in court, I mean, Danilo Blandone is now a government witness. He works for the Drug Enforcement Administration, and we've paid him, I don't know, $166,000 over the last 18 months because he's such a good informant. 
So they put him on the witness stand in Ricky Ross's case, and he testified that in 1981, he went to Honduras, he met with the commander, the military commander of the, of the CIA's army, and he was instructed to go, set, to go raise money in California for this Contra army. And, and he ends, was told that the ends justified the means. And those ends being sell cocaine if well, you have to. Well, look, he was, in, he was in the room with the Nicaraguan representative of the Cali cartel, Mr. Manessis, and he was in the room with a government marketing expert named Danilo Blandone. Now, if they weren't talking about selling cocaine, I don't know what they were talking about. And this is all information they can find on a website. I have to use that web website, but on a website on the internet. So we're going to put that up so people yeah. can go you and can look at these documents. Take a look at the documents yourself. And, and I, I guess the internet in that age was a little new, but we we see uh, the the grand arc of the story that was during the 1980s. The CIA and uh, CIA plants, which were allowing drug dealing all over the United States of America, in order to fund the rebels in Nicaragua. So imagine what the CIA is doing today with these so-called rebels in Syria. They get those weapons from uh, Libyan rebels that they had, and they basically are pushing them up, and who knows what's going on. And that ends our segment that was Ignorance is Strength. On this, Liberty in Exiles 1984 is not a beginner guide, a beginner guide to what you may say, a totalitarian state, to a freedom-less society, a society without liberties, who shall know? But that uh, that does end the show for me. You've been listening to the the program that does unmask the Leviathan in the 21st century. This is Liberty in Exile on the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda stream. All the links will be on libertyinexile.com. You can email me or follow me at freeisle.com. That ends our program. Until next week, au revoir et bonne chance à tous. Visit libertynexile.com.